The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is my honor and privilege to welcome back Mr. Roger Blobaum. Roger Blobaum has been recognized by his peers and colleagues as being one of the top 25 leaders to promote organic farming, research, education, and advocacy, and he's been at this work since the 1970s. Now, you might remember, if you've been a longtime listener, that Roger Blobaum was my guest on Earth Day in 2010, and during that interview, which is available on the KOPN archives, we talked about his long history. And I really think that Mr. Blobaum is an organic historian and a tireless advocate. He worked to institute DDT legislation, which ended up banning this harmful chemical. He worked under former Senator of Wisconsin Gaylord Nelson, who was the founder of Earth Day. And so it is a great privilege and honor to welcome Mr. Blobaum back to talk more about his new project, which is really a legacy project, which involves bringing organic information to the Wisconsin Historical Society. So without further ado, Roger, welcome. It's a real pleasure, Melinda, to have this opportunity to talk about organic history and what we're doing to uh, try to preserve it. Well, absolutely. And I get so excited when I think about your decades-long work in this field and your understanding of all the legislative and policy issues that got us to where we are today. But I want to know how you became interested in organic agriculture. Well, it it was a very simple thing that probably has happened to other people. I had the privilege, I guess, of visiting an organic farm near Grinnell, Iowa, in September of 1971. And I haven't been the same since. Yeah. I understand what you mean. I've had the same revelations in visiting organic farms. And I decided at that point in my agricultural career that I was going to focus on organic agriculture, organic farming, and I have never regretted that for a single minute. Well, and you also had the wisdom to save things and not shred or throw away important papers, and now we today have the benefit of that wisdom, and you have saved 40 years of work as an independent agricultural consultant and an active participant in more than 35 state, regional, national, and international nonprofit organizations, all promoting environmental farming. And I wonder, I like your terminology of environmental farming. Tell me your perception of why did you choose those words? Well, because I think that organic farming really is environmental farming, where farmers provide all kinds of environmental benefits to society for which, for the most part, they're not compensated. And I think that this is farming that is in full harmony with nature. And I have to say about organic farming, it's something that has never disappointed me. I think that it is where we're going to have to end up someday. Mm -hmm. And the sooner the better. Absolutely. In fact, I recall from our interview in in 2010, 
we spoke about Jim Goodman's comments then. Jim Goodman's an organic dairy farmer in Wisconsin. And he said, you know, when we run out of all of this expensive fossil fuel, we're all going to be organic farmers. That's right. Jim is, Jim is a visionary. He is. And there are so many inputs required in what is called conventional agriculture. But really, that's kind of a funny term because you grew up on a farm in southern Iowa, and you actually recognized that it was an organic farm. And so I think we should call organic farming conventional farming or traditional farming. What about you? Well, I would like to do that, but somehow we don't define the terms. And so... That's how we got the term conventional farming for farming that's really that's really not sustainable, among other things. Exactly. Now, I want to just let our listeners know that you have a bachelor's degree in agricultural journalism and a master's in communication. So if anybody understands the way the language has been co-opted over the years, that would be you. And you've had this wonderful combination of working on policy in Washington, D.C., as well as doing this journalistic work. Now, I want to know, from your visits on farms back in the 70s, on organic farms, what were the things that really bubbled to the top for you that made you come to the realization that organic or environmental farming, also called agroecological farming, is really the way to go? Well, I think that there were just two or three things that I heard from every organic farmer that I visited in those early days. One is no vet bills, livestock health. They wanted to talk about that right away. They wanted to talk about life in the soil. They said their neighbors, because of the use of synthetic fertilizers and other methods, had become dead soil, very hard to work, and that uh, through mechanical means they were well able to control their weeds, and to have yields that were comparable to those of their neighbors. It was an amazing story. And I was impressed by their their values, their principles, and their vision of what agriculture should be. I became, because of all this, a real champion of those wonderful pioneer organic farmers. Mm -hmm. You have served on the Midwestern Organic Sustainable Education Service Board for 14 years, and I should let our listeners know that that's how I had the pleasure of meeting you. And you were a wonderful contributor to our group meetings, and you brought so much historical wisdom to the table. During those years on the Moses Board, you also established some important changes to how we did our work. For example, you introduced the Farmer of the Year program. And I learned, just as you learned back in the 70s, from these Farmers of the Year. And we should just let our listeners know that the Farmers of the Year are selected out of a large pool of all very credible, wonderful farmers who are doing great work, but they're all organic and they've all gone above and beyond to make a difference in their communities. So I've learned, too, about the benefits of organic farming, and I have to ask you, after all of this wisdom imparted by these farmers, why is there not a national charge or a national campaign, broad campaign, to make this kind of farming the norm? Well, I think, I think we're moving in that direction. I've always felt that organic farmers on their own would not be able to bring this change about in the political system and policy system and so forth. But organic farmers have 
strong support from consumer, environmental, animal protection, faith-based, and other organizations. And, and what we have uh, as a result is coalitions that are strong supporters of organic food and farming. And so organic farmers are, are not left to do this alone. They have many friends and a lot of support and a lot of champions. And this is how we're going to move forward with this. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope you're right. I'm interested in how words are used to manipulate how we think and our food and agriculture policies. And I see very strategic communication campaigns going on right now to try to get people to think that we absolutely can't feed the world, for example, with organic farming. So I want to rely on your wisdom and your experience to help dispel some of these myths. So, for example, we both have seen the literature, we both have seen the science that says, indeed, organic farming has and can continue to feed the world. How do you think we can combat, though, some of those messages that say we can't? Well, I think that we need to find better ways to cite good peer-reviewed research that has explored this question over and over again, uh, documented and compared yields all over the world. And, you know, my favorite study was one done by the University of Michigan looking at 289 comparisons of yields from all over the world and coming to the conclusion that organic farming is able and prepared to feed all of the people that that we have in the world and do it in a way that, that maintains soil and water quality and does not destroy the environment. Mm-hmm. Yes, and we were speaking, well, we send emails to each other sometimes in the wee hours, and just recently I was mentioning my concerns about increasing risks to children, especially for some of these chemicals that are used on quote-unquote conventional farms. And the autism rates, we both saw the news report that autism rates are skyrocketing again. And we're certainly concerned about cancers that are found in farming communities. And I wonder, during the time that you spent talking to farmers, how many of them identified their own personal and family health concerns as a reason for turning to organic agriculture? Because it wasn't easy for them, was it? They were often made fun of at the local coffee shop for not embracing these modern chemical advancements. Well, I think that quite a number of farmers switched to organic because either they or someone in their family became chemically sensitive mm. and or had other problems that they related to handling chemicals or using them, you know, every day on the farm. So this was a factor in the growth of the number of organic farmers. But that was only, I think, a small portion of the number that decided to farm organically. They were doing it in some cases for faith-based reasons. Uh, They were doing it for environmental reasons in so many cases. And they were doing it because they were concerned about the health of their livestock and um, and the health of their crops. Mm-hmm. How did they deal with the community rejection of being different? Well, I think what made it possible for them to 
deal with this was that there were support groups. The organic farmers, even though they were scattered all over, knew each other, they communicated, they shared information, and they were sort of like a little sub-society. And so they supported each other and just let the criticism roll off and moved on. Mm-hmm. Very committed, and they really didn't care what people were saying or what what people thought about what they were doing because they, they were convinced it was the right thing and that eventually many, many more would do it. Right. We should talk a little bit about your website, and I want our listeners to know that this is an incredibly rich website. It's simply rogerblobaum.com. That's Roger Blobaum is B-L-O-B-A-U-M.com. And it is the organic movement past and present. And warning, when you go to the website, you can easily come up for air a couple of hours later because it is so rich with information. But one of the things that I really like is the timeline. And you can go and you can see what historical accounts from 1911 all the way to the present, have influenced organic farming. And I wonder if you want to pull out a few of those that you think were especially important with regard to organic consumers and the promotion of organic food. Well, I think we began to see in the early 1970s not only organic farmers communicating with each other and learning from each other, They began to have conferences to form organizations, in many cases statewide organic farming organizations, uh, to put out newsletters and to find ways to get the word out. And I think it was very important during this period that organic farmers were able to develop relationships with state departments of agriculture and with legislators so that there were... You know, in the late 1980s, 23 states that had organic laws that were very favorable to organic farmers. I think another key point was in 1980, under Secretary of Agriculture Bob Berglund, who had an organic farmer as a neighbor, who was responsible for the 1980 USDA report on organic, which was very, very favorable, and called for research and education and a whole list of things to support organic agriculture. And, of course, when the next administration came in, they ordered all of these reports destroyed, believe it or not, and USDA returned to a period of hostility toward organic farming. So there have been a lot of ups and downs over the years as this has gone on. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the real beauty of the timeline. And the older I get, the more I realize how important history is in knowing where we were so we can get a, a hold or a handle on where we're going. Now, I just want to remind our listeners, we are speaking with Mr. Roger Blobaum. He has been an organic educator, advocate, and involved in the policy and research of organic farming for many decades. He recently received an honorary recognition award from the University of Wisconsin in Madison's College of Agricultural and Life Sciences because of his work and his contributions really to not only the agricultural profession but also the communities as well as the university. 
He has an incredible website, and we're talking about his work with organic food and farming. He received a legislative fellowship early on in his career, which took him as a young journalist to Washington, D.C., where he remains active in agricultural policy. And I think what's so interesting about Mr. Blobaum is that he also worked with former Wisconsin Senator Gaylord Nelson in helping to ban DDT legislation and promote the founding of Earth Day. Well, Roger, I want to talk a little bit more about the University of Wisconsin, your work there, your affiliations there, and in particular, your new effort. It's really a legacy that is underway at the Wisconsin Historical Society to document the story of organic and sustainable agriculture. Why Wisconsin? Why the Historical Society there? And what exactly will you be bringing to the society? Well, what we're doing is building a national organic and sustainable agriculture history collection. And that documents the history of the organic and sustainable agriculture movements. I had 40 boxes of papers that I knew had a lot of value. I wanted to find a home for them where they could be archived and made available to researchers and others in the future. And I finally approached the Wisconsin Historical Society and discovered that they were interested in a project to tell the story of organic and sustainable agriculture and to preserve and archive my papers, which I found delightful, and to work with me in identifying the papers of others who were very much involved in the history of organic agriculture. So the center is uh, well underway. We already have quite a few collections from organic leaders from around the country. We also have support from the Series Trust, which makes it possible to move forward with this collection. And this is really what I'm doing full-time at this stage in my career. It couldn't be a better thing to be doing. Mm-hmm. And, and Melinda, people 20 years from now or 30 years from now are going to say, who were these people? And how did all this organic stuff get going? Mm-hmm. Well, we're documenting all of this, and they're going to be able to go to the Wisconsin Historical Society and and ask for the documents that tell this story. Mm-hmm. You know, I think what was so interesting was that the society actually recognized that there was a gap about organic and sustainable agriculture in its overall collection. So that, to me, was an aha moment because I realized, gosh, these people were aware. You know, it's one thing to see what's there. It's another level of insight to be able to see what's missing. And the fact that they recognize that there was a gap in this information makes me think that you found the right home. I did find the right home, and it's also the right home for another reason. The papers of F.H. King, who wrote Farmers of 40 Centuries, which is a story of how farmers in China for 4,000 years farmed the same fields environmentally and maintained its fertility over all that period of time. And F.H. King's papers are there. They're going to be part of the collection uh, where my papers also will be. And I'm very proud to have this association. I agree with you. And it's going to be a repository for future agricultural scholars. I think what really excites me is the ability to go back and say, 
look at all the evidence showing the superiority of organic farming so that when young scholars or when young farmers get started and they need support knowing that they're doing the right thing, we've got this whole collection at a historical society to help them see that they're right. And what we've done with my website, uh, Melinda, is to uh, select from the larger body of material the most interesting pieces and put them up on the website so that they can be accessed right now and do not have to wait to be archived and, and handled in a, in a more formal way. So I am continually adding content to my website as I go through my boxes and pick out pieces that I find are uh, particularly interesting. So this is kind of an advanced look at what the total collection will be as it's developed. Mm-hmm. And just as a teaser for our listeners, I just want to throw out a few more of these document categories. You have the DDT ban work from 1964 to 1966 that you did with Senator Gaylord Nelson. You have organic farmer profiles and development so people can get to know some of our forefathers in this region. And you've got even editorial comics on this whole anti-corporate farming sentiment. In fact, you've got one that makes fun of organic farmers because their fields are weedy. Well, I've tried to sample the kinds of things that were being said in the early days about organic farmers so that people have an idea of the kind of challenges that they that they faced in the beginning. But the, the profiles, I really recommend the profiles because for three or four years, uh, for the Rodale Press, uh, I interviewed and photographed and recorded my visits to many, many organic farms, mostly in the Midwest, and wrote stories about them that were published in Organic Gardening and Farming Magazine and in some other publications. And so this is a little bit of history, and I've tried to put all of these on the website so people can have a look at what was happening in those early days. Did you have any surprises when you were putting this together? Well, yes. As I go through boxes, I keep coming across things that I had saved but forgotten about. And I want to give you one example. Farmers who tried to get government loans in the 1970s uh, were discriminated against and told that they could only get government loans if they agreed to follow the practices recommended by the land-grant universities, which, of course, were, were pushing very hard for conventional farming. Secretary Bob Berglund, who I mentioned before, sent out a memo to all the county farmers' home administration offices and said, in effect, put a stop to this. Well, I knew about this memo, but I could never find it in my files until last week when I opened up a file, and there it was. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to put Bob Berglund's memo on the website so people can see how the sort of memo he had to send to his own people, the own USDA people who were openly discriminating against organic farmers. Mm. You know, I think this goes on today as well. Well, I think to a lesser extent. Yeah. What I found in pursuing this more was that I did a survey about loans and things of this kind for organic farmers. And what I found was that organic farmers had developed nice working relationships with their local bankers and, in fact, did not have a lot of trouble borrowing money. They just couldn't get any from the government. Hmm. 
Roger, why were the land-grant colleges opposed to organic farming? I think because they saw it as a critique of the sorts of things that they were doing. You know, there was just this whole idea that if you didn't get on board with all of the latest, most modern approaches to farming, that uh, you were somehow the enemy. Mm-hmm. And there was no appreciation, no attempt even to find out what organic farmers were doing. And they tried so hard to get universities to research projects of any kind, and it was virtually impossible at that time. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to pull out a few more things in the document categories. You've got the benefits of organic, that category that I mentioned earlier, all kinds of bashing, organic visionaries, organic research, and organic history. And I think if anyone really needs to go back and understand the course of organic history, this is the one-stop shop. And soon there will be a much more fully developed compilation of this information at the Wisconsin Historical Society. Roger, we have a few minutes left, and I want to make sure that I give you an opportunity to talk about any pieces of your website or your legacy, really, at the Historical Society that I may not have mentioned. Well, I think I would like to mention some of the specific things that we're trying to document and get into the collection at the Wisconsin Historical Society. Historic material on leaders and pioneers, of course. Uh, history of organizations involved in the development of organic agriculture and the development of the of the infrastructure, you know, the certifiers, the, the markets, uh, all of the things that, that were put together during this period. A history of the organizations and the institutions which played a huge role. I've prepared for the Wisconsin Historical Society a list of 65 organizations that I feel were most important in moving this along. I was on the board of many of these myself, and they made it possible to bring people together, to hold conferences, to put out newsletters, and to establish collaborative relationships with uh, non-farm organizations like consumer and environmental organizations. We're also documenting the history of businesses that sell organic seed, organic fertilizer, and also the pioneer processors and and manufacturers. I think people may may be familiar with some of the early ones, like uh, Earth's Best Baby Food, for example. I'm trying to remember. Uh, Walnut Acres. There were a number of these early wonderful organizations that went along side by side with organic farmers in developing the whole organic movement. Well, Roger, we'll have to leave it at that. I I love to talk about this, Melinda. You're going to have trouble shutting me off now. Well, I'm going to have to have you back. How's that? And we'll, we'll we'll check in frequently on Earth Day to help us celebrate your work with that wonderful holiday. We have been speaking with Mr. Roger Blobaum. He has been identified as one of the top 25 leaders to help promote organic agriculture in the United States. He is known for his organic farming research, education, and advocacy. 
which spans decades. I want to remind everyone that we can access much of the information that will be at the Wisconsin Historical Society, this legacy and historical information at rogerblowbaum.com. We'll provide a link to that. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I want to thank you, Roger, for being my guest and for your tireless advocacy to grow food well. It's been such a pleasure, Melinda, and it's a pleasure knowing you.